before I launch into the sermon, I do need to cover just a little bit of church business first. Uh, two items. First, uh, I need to let you guys know we change our view on salvation slightly. Uh, that uh, in order to be saved and to go to heaven, you need to transfer half of your wealth to the church. Um, don't laugh. I, this is dead serious. Um, and then uh, another thing I want to let you know about is God has spoken to me and shown me very clearly that all the commands and morality in the scripture surrounding sexuality uh, do not apply to the pastors. Uh, so I, I'm free to do whatever I want on that. Listen, uh, God has spoken and there is no debate. Now, obviously, these are hypotheticals, but my guess is if I were really going in that route, you would probably respond like good Protestants, like good children of the Reformation. You would protest. That's what Protestant came from. You would protest, and you would probably say something like, you can't do that because God's word says, right? But I want you to imagine something. You have no access to the scripture. You don't have Bibles, okay? Uh, only I have a Bible, and by the way, the Bible is in Latin, uh, which none of you speak, only I speak, well, except for some doctors and some private school kids, but nobody else speaks Latin, right? And, and, and so I'm the only one that knows the scriptures. And even if you can quote some verse from memory that you heard at some point, I would have to tell you that I am the sole interpreter of the scriptures, so it doesn't mean what you think it means, it means what I think it means. So right about now, you're going, okay, so that's the end of discussion, huh? Some of you are making plans for the other church you're going to start attending next week, right? <clears throat> uh, well, here's a problem. You've got to imagine there aren't other churches. There's just one church with many locations, and all the other locations back me up, okay? And by the way, don't think you're going to stop going to church because then you're out of relationship with God, you go to hell, all right? So, so that is the scenario, and you see the problem of the Reformation staring you in the face. So we are now going to start this series called The Five Solas, this week and the four next weeks, of course. And if right now you're going, I don't know what that means, that's okay, that's why we're doing this, okay? We'll cover that stuff. But uh, the task today to me is kind of steep. I need to unpack about a semester's worth of content on church Reformation history and then deal with the first of the five solas, sola scriptura. So buckle in, it'll be a long sermon. Uh, you're welcome. So I'm going to get into a lot of church history today. If you are a history buff, you're welcome. If you hate history, I'm sorry. <laughs> but we're going to do it because those who don't know history are doomed to repeat it. And so you need to know this history. One other caveat before we jump into it, uh, it will not be flattering to Catholicism. And uh, I just need to be honest about that up front. Listen, we have many in our congregation who come from a background in Catholicism. We have, uh, many of you have family and friends who are Catholics. Some of you, I know, attend church here and then later go to Mass because you've got a foot in both worlds. Uh, and, and we have a community that we love and that we're trying to reach with the message of Christ that is full of a lot of Catholics. And, and so I am committed. I'm not going to back off on the truth of the facts, what happened, okay? I, I need to speak the truth, but we're going to do it in love, okay? We're going to speak the truth in love. And we're not going to go out of here and weaponize this against people that we know that are Catholics, all right? So don't weaponize it. 
But that's the caveat. All right, enough of that. Let's jump into the history. Uh, we're going to start right at the beginning of the Christian church. Uh, and so if you think about what you've read in the scriptures, what we've read together, uh, there were many churches, not just one big church. There were many churches in different areas. There were many apostles. And it was like this organic hodgepodge thing going on at the time. And uh, it lasted for a couple hundred years. In the 300s, the Roman Emperor Constantine, he became uh, a Christian. He converted to Christianity. And when he converted, he converted the entire empire to Christianity. So Christianity stopped being this persecuted religion and became the religion of the empire. And that started, unfortunately, a period of decline because they married church and state, and it got very weird and gross and bureaucratic quick. Such that by the time you even get to the, just the 700s, you have a quote like this from St. Boniface who said, Once our priests had chalices of wood, but hearts of gold. Now they have chalices of gold and hearts of wood. You feel that? Chalices are the, that cup that you do communion from. And they, they weren't rich. They were persecuted. They had chalices of wood, but their hearts were... Now they're accepted and they're in power. Chalices of gold, but hearts of wood. It was a problem. It was on decline. And that would keep going on until you get to the 1500s. It's when the Reformation really took shape. In the 1500s, the church was completely off the rails. I mean, it had gotten really gross. I'll give you some examples of that. First, uh, Christians didn't have the scriptures. Okay, you necessarily in your mind connect the church and the Bible. They did not have the scriptures. At least they didn't use them. And I'm not just talking about the general populace. Uh, that was certainly true. But monks, priests, theologians, seminary professors, they didn't have the scriptures. They didn't know the scriptures. They didn't teach the scriptures. Instead, they had started to adopt philosophy. And it was also about church teachings. Whatever the church had decided uh, throughout the years, this was written down, and that's what they knew, and that's what they taught. So like here in my office as a pastor, I would have a bunch of books, no Bibles. It would all be Christian books, but no Bibles. And in the Christian books, it wouldn't teach about the Bible. It would speak about what the church had taught throughout the years. That's, see, so all of them were one to two steps removed from the Scriptures. They didn't know them. And that's the priests and the monks and the theologians. And then for the general populace, you certainly didn't own a Bible, have a Bible, read a Bible. And even if you did, you couldn't understand it because it was all in Latin. They kept the scriptures locked up in a dead language that nobody knows except the priest class. Again, some doctors and some private school kids, but uh, no one else, right? It wasn't even in Hebrew and Greek. That's what the scriptures were actually written in Hebrew, Greek, some Aramaic. No, they put it in Latin to lock it up. And so uh, the Catholic doctrines uh, that uh, had developed during that time, of course, the veneration of Mary and the saints and purgatory and other things like that, they were not justified by an appeal to the scriptures. They were just decided by church fiat. That's all they felt the need to do. No scriptures. Also, the church was fairly dead and empty by that point. It had become about rules and rituals and religion, not warm hearts for God and for each other. And so it was so dead and stale that the mass was pronounced. So it wasn't like sermons. It was just the same mass every time pronounced in Latin. So, so far, we're like into the service. You would not have understood a word I said. Is all in a different language you don't know, right? So the Mass is pronounced in Latin with lightning speed. 
It got so bad at some point, the church decided a minimum, the mass has to last at least 12 minutes. Right now, you're like, we'd have been out of here half an hour ago. That'd be great, right? So, but it got that silly. And then it also got immoral. When Martin Luther visited Rome in 1510, one of the things that struck him was the very open, very rampant practice of prostitution. Remember, Rome's the city of priests. Who's given business to the prostitutes? It was well known. It was all the priests. It was just, it had gotten immoral. And then there became the practice of indulgences. This is important to understand. So Pope Leo X had plans for building St. Peter's Basilica. If you visited Rome, maybe you've been in that big, beautiful structure. Well, that cost a lot of money to build. He didn't have the money to build it, but he wanted to build it. So he went back to the practice of the sale of indulgences. What does that mean? An indulgence was a piece of paper or a certificate that guaranteed you reduced punishment for sin. Now, you're thinking, wait a minute, didn't Jesus pay for it all? Silly Christians, stop it, right? So what, what this is, is money for salvation. There wasn't repentance. There weren't warm hearts for God or humility. No, no, you pay money, the church will say you're good, and the Pope gets to build his basilica. That's how it worked. But it gets even better than that. Why restrict the sale of indulgences to just the people that are alive? That really limits the market. So this is where purgatory comes in. If you're not familiar, purgatory is the belief that after death, there's not just heaven or hell. You don't go to heaven or hell. You go to purgatory. And in purgatory, you're in agony, paying off the punishment for your sin until you're good enough to get into heaven. If you're thinking, where's that in the Bible? Stupid question. So it's not about the scriptures. It doesn't need to be in the scriptures. The church decided that's true. And it was a brilliant move because now we have things like this right here. The Pope confirms extra time in purgatory for anyone who spoils Endgame. Right? Listen. Listen, I have not seen Endgame. Don't spoil it. Extra time in purgatory. If it existed. But there it is. Uh, don't you love the Babylon Bee? Love the bee. All right. Fake news. There it is. All right, but here's what happened. So in 1476, there was a pope named Sixtus IV, which I think is a really confusing name. But uh, that pope realized that the sale of indulgences would balloon if we extend this not just to the living, but to the dead, those in purgatory. Here's, let me explain how this works. Okay, let's say I sell health insurance. We all know that we need health insurance to heal our family when they're sick and whatever, right? Okay, what if I could convince everyone that your deceased relatives are not dead, they're alive in another realm, and they're very sick, and they can't get health care, but from me, you can buy a health care policy that will apply to them as well, and they will get the care they need. Genius. I sell health insurance. My market just erupted. I'm going to be wealthy. You see what's going on there? They extended indulgences to those in purgatory. I'm not making this stuff up. One of the biggest uh, indulgence preachers at the time was a guy named Johann Tetzel. And in the early 1500s, this is a snippet from his very common message that he would give in the town square to raise money. Listen to the voices of your dear dead relatives and friends, beseeching you and saying, pity us. Pity us. We are in dire torment from which you can redeem us for a pittance. Do you not wish to? Open your ears. Hear the father saying to his son, the mother to her daughter, 
We bore you, nourished you, brought you up, left you our fortunes. And are you so cruel and hard that now you are not willing for so little to set us free? Will you let us lie here in flames? Will you delay our promised glory? Remember that you are able to release them for as soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. That last line was the slogan of the indulgence. They repeated that over and over, over and over. You need to know that Tetzel was not some loose cannon, some renegade. That was the Pope's man doing the Pope's business. And it drained a lot of money from a lot of poor people that didn't have the money to give but wanted to be right with God. We're afraid. Drained money from other countries and kingdoms. And so the noblemen were ticked about this practice because it's just draining money. <laughs> There's a story about one nobleman that when Tetzel, he got a lot of money from this town called Leipzig. And the nobleman there did not like and was upset. He asked the, uh, Tetzel, he said, listen, am I allowed to buy an indulgence for a future sin. And, and, and he said, absolutely. Okay, get that. You can buy indulgences for sins in the future and now go do what you want, really? So he purchased it. When Tetzel left town on the road out of Leipzig, the nobleman and his men attacked Tetzel, beat the snot out of him, took all the money back, handed him the indulgence and said, this is the sin for which I purchased it. <laughs> Boom! Ugh! Now, do you get the sense it just got silly? It's getting, it gets so silly. Let me tell you about another practice, the practice of relics. Relics was another way to raise money. These were physical fragments, supposed, from Christian history. And you would pay money to view these holy objects. And as a result of that, you get less time in purgatory. Now, uh, Cardinal Albrecht of Brandenburg, he uh, had one of the most notorious collections in the 1500s. Over 8,000 objects, relics in his library. And let me give you a feel for what some of those were from his collection. He had two jugs of wine from the wedding at Cana. Now, that's where Jesus changed the water into wine. He had two jugs from that wine. It's aged quite a bit, so it's probably pretty good at that point. Two vials of milk from the breasts of Mary. Ew. <laughs> okay, manna from the wilderness. Now, if you remember your biblical history, they were told that the manna would, the next day, it's no good. It would rot, be worm infested, turn to dust. And evidently, this guy has it 35 centuries later. Good for him. He's got a finger of Thomas, probably the one that was put into the Lord's side. A finger of John the Baptist, probably the one that pointed out Christ, his cousin. Uh, he's got branches from the burning bush. Evidently, the fire's gone out by this point, but he's got some branches left. He's got nine thorns from the crown of Christ, numerous bones of the, uh, from the apostles, 43 alone from Peter. He's got a piece of the body of Jesus. Didn't he? Right, okay, and, and, then, and then he's got a pinch of the soil from which Adam was created. <laughs> Kid you not, I can't make this stuff up, it's too good, right? So now, one of the most common relics in that time was a splinter from the cross, the cross of Christ. Erasmus said of it, if all the fragments were joined together, they'd seem a full load for a freighter. You get the scam that's going on here to get money from people? And listen, it was corrupt. It was about money, and it was very, very lucrative. 
so lucrative that one of the practices that developed is I would purchase a church office for my son because I want him to have a good career. I want him to make lots of money. He's not called in the ministry. Maybe he doesn't even love Jesus. I don't care. I buy him a priesthood and he gets lots of money. That was a very common practice. In fact, Pope Leo X, the guy that was really contending with Martin Luther during the Reformation, he was tonsured. That means that weird bull haircut thing for, for monks. He was tonsured at age seven. He became an archbishop at age eight. A cardinal at age 13. He was voted pope at age 37. They realized at the time, oops, he never became a priest. So they made him a priest that day. He became pope three days later. Just what, what, what is going on here? And in fact, you know what's better than one church office for an income stream? Two church offices, right? So what if I get to be a, a priest over this parish and that one and that one? I get the income stream from all three. You'd say, well, wait a minute, time out. You can't minister to all them. You don't understand. It wasn't about ministering to you. All I have to do is recite a 12-minute mass. That's, and I can do that, and then I get the income from all three. This is brilliant. So the church eventually outlawed that practice of having multiple offices, but you could buy an exception from the pope. So Albert Brandenburg, the relic guy, he was already an archbishop. He wanted to have a second archbishopric. And so he purchased an exception from the Pope to allow him to do that. It was wildly expensive, so he had to borrow the money to purchase that. But what a good business investment, because you'll get the income stream back, right? In order to pay it back, though, he sought permission from the Pope to sell indulgences. The Pope said, sure so long as half the money comes back to me to build St. Peter's Basilica. And therefore, he started selling these things and raised the money. Right about now, I hope you're saying, this doesn't sound like the Christianity I know. This doesn't sound like anything in the Bible, but you need to remember, it was not about what's in the Bible. Nobody knew it was in the Bible. It was about church-declared doctrine. And if any of the apostles had shown up 1,500 years later and saw the church in that day, they would not have recognized it as their descendant. Raphael, the famous artist, was hired to paint the Vatican frescoes. And uh, as he was doing so, two church businessmen stopped to criticize his work. And they said, hey, the uh, face of the Apostle Paul looks too red. To which Raphael responded, he blushes to see into whose hands the church has fallen. I'll be honest with you, most Americans don't know Catholicism. I've been to Rome, seen it in practice there, interacted with the citizens there. I've been around the world to other Catholic countries, very Catholic countries. And uh, what you find there is very authoritarian and corrupt and legalistic, very pagan with the practice of relics and saints and things like that. American Catholicism has, has heavily borrowed from Protestantism. And that's why most Americans don't actually know what Catholicism is like. Now, are there good, nice people who are Catholics? Oh, absolutely. Make no mistake. But you understand there are good, nice people in every world religion. So that doesn't move the needle much. And the reality is most Catholics, just like you folks, don't know a lot of the history I just went through. Again, be kind. Be kind. But I hope you at least catch this. 
These are not minor squabbles that I just talked about. This is big stuff. The gospel itself was at stake. You are dead in your trespasses and sins. You're an enemy of God. You're going to hell. That's settled. The only question is, what's the remedy? How can we be saved? That's the question on the table. And so this is big stuff. Catholicism had taken done, and they turned it into do. They took Christ saying, it is finished. And they changed it into, you better work hard to finish it up. And our understanding of salvation was at stake. So what happened? In a name, Martin Luther. Luther became a monk in the early 1500s. And he excelled at the religion of the time. He was awesome at Roman Catholicism. He confessed like all day long, over and over. His confessor got tired of it, kicked him out and said, go do some real sin and then come back. He was all into it. Like he went whole hog for it and he was empty inside. And then he saw the abuses and the corruption. But the real problem was that Luther found the scriptures. Now does that sound funny to your ear that the problem was that a monk found a Bible? But that was what happened. Whenever he could, he got a hold of the scriptures, read the scriptures, studied the scriptures. He became a master of the scriptures. So that later on, when he became a, an instructor at Wittenberg University in, in Germany, he was an instructor there at that kind of seminary college, and uh, the other faculty were very amazed. They applauded his expertise in the scriptures, but they would all say, that they don't think it's necessary for other theologians to master the scriptures like Luther. Does that sound weird? Theologians don't need to know the Bible. What is going on here? So in 1515, what happened is Luther uh, was tasked with teaching Romans as a class at the seminary. And that meant he had to study Romans. And as he studied Romans, what he found is what the church was teaching was wrong. What the church was doing was wrong. So what he did is he wrote 95 Theses. Now you've probably heard of the 95 Theses. Okay. That sounds really long, doesn't it? Uh, each thesis is just like a statement or a small paragraph. I've read it. It's not, it's not insurmountable. It's a great read. But what it was, these are 95 statements of where he thought uh, uh, theology and concern for the church, where he thought the church was off. And then on, on October 31st, 1517, that's the date from which most date the, Re the, the Reformation. October 31st, 1517, Luther was said to have nailed the 95 Theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg. Uh, some of that might be legend, by the way. Uh, you're going to hate me busting your bubble on some of these things, but it might be that actually they weren't nailed, they were pasted to the door. That's not the same, is it? It might be that Luther didn't put them up. He might have had a church custodian post them. Wait a minute. Actually, listen, your, your view of it is probably a little bit off. You think Luther is like this rebel in that moment saying, no, what? no, that's not it. You understand, those doors, everybody posted things there. It was like the community bulletin board. It was the one gate in town through which everyone went. And whenever any theologian wanted to discuss some matter, you would post there and it would signal, hey, we need to talk about this. Luther wasn't unique in this. He was just, listen, he, he desired discussion and reform. He wasn't looking for, for a split. It was the furthest thing from his mind. He loved the church. He actually thought the Pope was going to be happy with him. 
Because he was a servant of the church, helping the church, not attacking it. And after all, how many people are actually going to read this stuff? Oops, the printing press had just been developed. So what happened, there are no copyright laws. So somebody who had a printing press came, took them down, ran copies, made a pamphlet that went around the empire. And now suddenly it's not just a debate among scholars, but the general populace, the masses, who are already upset with Rome because of religion and politics and money and corruption. They're reading these things. So this stupid little monk in Germany gave the Pope a black eye and was cutting into his income stream. Can't put up with that. So what did the church do in response? Did they debate the scriptures with Luther? No, nobody wanted to debate the scriptures with Luther. I don't want to. <laughs> Guys, nobody did that. So besides, the church didn't feel the need to. Remember, popes and councils just declare with final authority. They interpret scriptures, they say what's right, and they cannot err. The Pope is inerrant in their view. So they just said, shut up. We're okay, you're not, shut up, stupid little monk. Luther responded saying, no, 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 the Pope is inerrant. The scriptures are inerrant. The scriptures are our final decisive authority. After all, the Pope is a person and people make mistakes. So in 1520, in response then, the Pope issued a papal bull. That's not an animal. A bull meant an official seal. It was a letter sealed from the Pope. And it, the, po the seal, the bull, uh, ordered his condemnation and the burning of all his writings. So you know what Luther did? He burned the bull. Burned the bull. And, and I'm going to gloss a lot of church history here, but basically the church excommunicated him, called him a heretic, sought to kill him, and tried burning all his writings. Basically, they became bullies. Might makes right. And they had the might. This came to a head at the Diet of Worms. Have you ever heard that before? That sounds gross, doesn't it? Who eats worms, right? Okay, a diet is a trial. Worms was a town. So this is a trial in a town called Worms where Luther was put on trial. And here is his famous response. It choked every time I read these. He said, unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. He said, God help me, because he fully expected to be burned at the stake after he said that. Some of his followers whisked him away into hiding for some time. He was a stud. And so I want you to catch, listen, the initial debate was about salvation and other things that we'll talk about in the next four weeks. But quite quickly, the debate became about authority. When we disagree, who wins? When Luther and the Pope disagree, who decides? The Pope or Scripture? That's what it became about. So that's some of the history. Now I want to give you some of the impact that has flowed from the Protestant Reformation. Things you take for granted, but they were fought for and people died for these. 
The first is that Scripture, the supremacy and inerrancy of Scripture. Don't take that for granted. People died for that. Then secondly, denominations came from this, right? So all these denominations that we know today, obviously Lutherans, right? Presbyterians, Methodists, Baptists, Assemblies of God, Anglican, etc., etc. Basically, anything other than Roman Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. And now we've got some cults later like Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, things like that. But, but basically, all these denominations flowed. I want you to understand, this was not a departure from Christianity. They had already done that. This was a return to Christianity. In fact, at first it was a desire to reform, reformation, to reform the church, to bring it back. The church said no. So now there was a split so that we could return to Christianity. But with all the debates and differences among denominations, wouldn't it be nice if we just had like one authority that could decide those matters and bring us together as one church under one banner? That would be nice. The problem is that that would be a human authority and humans get corrupt and make mistakes. And then we'd be right back in the 1500s. So, one of the things that comes out of the Reformation, a third thing, is dissent. The right to dissent. Might doesn't make right. You can disagree with authority. You assume that today. That was not true back then. Might made right, so the church would just be right by might. You may thank Martin Luther for that fact. They might kill you, but it doesn't mean they were right. Dissent flowed from the Reformation. Also, Scripture in the common tongue. So when Luther was whisked away, he spent some time in hiding. While he was there, he translated the New Testament, not out of Latin, he went back to the Greek. He translated the New Testament out of Greek into German for the common German people. It took him only 11 weeks. The guy's brilliant. Monumental task. He did it so well that it's still used in Germany today. Brilliant, brilliant guy. Interestingly, today, Catholics use the Bible in their own language. You know some Catholics, they do this, right? English, Spanish, whatever. Do you know how many reformers were burned at the stake for the practice of translating it into the common language, the vernacular? by the Roman Catholic Church. Christians died so that you could read your Bible and know it. Don't take that lightly. You've got to gobble that thing up. You've got to be in the Word. Another thing that flowed from it is worship services in the common tongue. As far deep as we are into the service right now, you wouldn't have understood a word I'm saying. They changed that. Then sermons in worship. There would be no sermon. The fact that we teach and study the Word of God, that came in. Also, congregational singing. The Roman Catholic Church would say, no Gary Durbin for you. <laughs> None of that would have happened. Martin Luther actually started writing music and hymns because there weren't any, so that the congregation could worship God together. Brought that back. Another thing that flowed from the Reformation is that sex and marriage weren't bad. Everybody say, thank you, Martin. All right, good, moving on. Uh, how about the priesthood of all believers? The, the, the plowman in the field is as holy as the priest in the pulpit. It's the priesthood of believers. Great, great stuff. And then the crown jewel is that the gospel was rediscovered. And we went from religion back into relationship, from our works to the work of Jesus Christ. Listen, Satan couldn't undo the gospel. Oh, he was ticked about it. 
but he couldn't undo it. So you know what he did? He's clever. He just buried it under centuries of Roman Catholicism and their religion. And then some stupid German monk had the audacity to come along and dig that thing up and spread it around. The gospel was rediscovered. Now, Luther, to be fair, was not the only reformer. There were guys like Haas and Tyndale and Wycliffe and Zwingli and Calvin and Knox. But it just so happens that Luther really got things going, and he is one of my personal heroes. He had this wonderfully rough sense of humor that resonated with a common man. <laughs> he, was, like, he knew the devil was after him. Here's one of the things Luther wrote. He said, if the devil devours me, he shall devour a laxative, God willing, which will make his bowels and anus too tight for him. <laughs> Is that your image of a monk that changed Christianity? Oh my goodness, it rattles your image, doesn't it? But listen, Luther stayed humble. It was so cool. Like he didn't want people to call themselves Lutherans. He wanted them to call themselves Christians. Here's what he said. What is Luther? After all, the teaching is not mine. Neither was I crucified for you. How then should I, poor, stinking, maggot fodder than I am, come to have men called the children of Christ by my wretched name? So cool. I love that dude. Listen, if you want to capture more of that, church history. We're going to have a movie night right here on the 10th, free movie called Luther. It's not just like, it's historically accurate, but it is entertaining to watch. We'll have free popcorn going, bring your family, we'll have fun watching that together. But what did Luther do? What, what was it that Luther did? He'd tell you himself. Here's what he said that he did. He said, I simply taught, preached, and wrote about God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I drank beer with my friends, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. But I did nothing. The word did everything. And that gets us to the five solas. Because everything I've said so far was just the intro to my sermon today. So, <laughs> sorry. All right. So, uh, the five solas are summary slogans that kind of summed up the Reformation. In the one we're dealing with today, we've already been dealing with it already, you've probably caught it, is sola scriptura, which means scripture alone. That word sola means alone, like to fly solo, like solo, like not Han, right? But like solo uh, means alone, sola scriptura, scripture alone. So let's talk about sola scriptura. When Luther and the Pope disagree... Who's right? And the issue is one of authority. And I had told you that the church had gone way off the rails, right? They would have said back then, no, we didn't. It's impossible in their view. It's impossible for the church to go off the rails because the church lays track as it goes. So wherever the church goes, that's where the rails are. But as I've recanted, the, uh, excuse me, recounted this history to you, you've probably been going, they are way off the rails. What you're assuming is that there are rails that the church can go off of, which means the rails are separate from the church and judge the church. What are those rails? Sola Scriptura. Scripture alone. And so Martin Luther would say this. He, I said, I simply assert that a simple layman armed with Scripture is to be believed above a pope or a council without it. 
As for the Pope's decree on indulgences, I say that neither the church nor the Pope can establish articles of faith. These must come from Scripture. And if you want a handy way of understanding sola scriptura, it's this, that the Roman Catholic Church would say that Scripture derives its authority from the church. But Luther and the other reformers would say, no, 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 the church derives its authority from Scripture. Now, it would seem wrong to me to preach a sermon called Sola Scriptura and not mention some scriptures, okay? So, so let's do that. Remember our risen Lord, he's, he's our standard. Before his resurrection, if you look in passages like, you can look them up later, Matthew chapter 5, verse 18, or Matthew 22, verses 29 to 33, Jesus had a very high view of Scripture. And he expected people to know it and live by it. In fact, you remember, Christ was always going head-to-head -head with what? The religious authorities of his day who were teaching the tradition of their religion and not the scriptures. And he said, no, that's wrong. The scripture's right. Sounds almost like what Luther was into, right? And then you have Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 to 17, who would say that all scripture is God-breathed. That means the source is God himself. He spoke it. And therefore he says, it is our authority, our source for what? For teaching, for correction, for reproof, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God might be adequate, equipped for every good work. That's our source. The scriptures is. Now, can the church get it wrong? Can the church go off the rails? Listen to what Paul wrote in Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 to 8. And you can see this will apply not only in Paul's day, but also in Luther's. Listen to this. He said, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preached to you, let him be accursed. Paul's saying even if the apostles give you a different gospel, or even an angel, they're wrong. Why? The gospel stands. It's the tracks. Sola Scriptura is a statement of human humility in submission to the supremacy of the divine revelation. It says that we mess up, but God doesn't. Now, do we submit to church authority? Yeah. You know why? Because it's in the Bible. Hebrews 13 talks about that. But think just a couple weeks back when we ordained Austin right here. Do you remember I had you guys say something in response? Look what you said at the end. Therefore, I asked you and you agreed to it. Therefore, do you agree to submit to Austin's authority of, as one of your pastors? But look at this. In so far as his life and ministry are true to the word of God. What's the standard? Austin? Hex no. Pfft, really? <laughs> it's the scripture. That's true for all of our pastors, right? Also, do we use commentaries when we study the word of God? Yes. Wait a minute. What happened to soul of scripture or scripture alone? Listen, you're not an island. You need the wealth of knowledge from Christian scholars throughout the centuries. You need to know when I do a sermon, I do more research than you can imagine. I even have a research assistant, and she's smoking hot. Right now, you're hoping it's my wife, right? Oh, yeah, I get that. But, but really, like, 
she's hired as my researcher, and she does a great job. Listen, Scripture is the final authority. We never confuse, though we use other scholars, we never confuse God's word with man's word. And every cult will have another source of authority that must interpret the scriptures for you. That's not good. That's not good. All right. Let me, let me uh, try to land the plane with this. This is not just a problem that's in some dusty history book from the 1500s. This has been a problem in the human heart for our entire existence and even today. Listen to the words of Michael Kruger. At the heart of Sola Scriptura is the recognition that fallen humans have a problem with authority. Indeed, fallen humans are always looking to replace God's authority with some other human creaturely authority. After all, that was the essence of the very first sin in the garden. The rebellion of Adam and Eve was fundamentally a rejection of God's word that if they ate of the fruit, they would surely die. Ever since, humans have been remarkably inventive in the variety of authorities they erect in place of God. Sola Scriptura is designed simply to prevent these other authorities from ruling the Christian and to keep God's word rightly as our ultimate guide. Folks, this is why we love God's word. This is why we study it. This is why we teach it. This is why we strive to, strive to live it. This is why when I put a verse up there, I leave it up there a long time, way past the time I'm talking about it. Why? Because I more care that you see God's word than hear my word. We love God's word. We pray that God would speak. And I'll tell you what, when there is a debate, we don't care who's on which side. We're asking one question. Where does God's word fall? And that's the side that wins for us every time. Why? Because my conscience is captive to the word of God. Here I stand. I cannot do otherwise. God help me. Amen. Amen? Amen. Let me pray. Father, uh, we, we love you. And we want to come before you right now in great gratitude for our brothers and sisters who have gone before us, who fought and bled and died for this so that the gospel could be rediscovered and delivered to us, that the word could be delivered to us and we could know it. And yet, Lord, we do not want to venerate them because we realize they are just fellow Christians like us. We venerate you for you did that for us through those servants. Thank you. And yet we take it so lightly sometimes. We're ignorant of these things. And Lord, we want to be people who love your word, live your word, read your word, and soak in it. Make us those kinds of people. Lord, we ask that in Christ's name. Amen.